and in the presence of God's Word. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Now, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. We are very proud of our Constitution of the United States. The Constitutional Convention began in 1783, and our Constitution has been amended only 26 times in all the years since then. The first 10 amendments came almost immediately, and we've had only 16 in more than 200 years since. The first 10, of course, we called the Bill of Rights. But we have disagreements as to exactly what each of those amendments really means. For example, the first is about freedom of speech. It's been interpreted to mean freedom of the press, freedom of the media. And occasionally we have reporters who go to jail or to prison because they will not reveal sources when they've supposedly quoted someone in something they've either written or said. We also learned that freedom of speech cannot mean the right to stand up in a crowded theater and scream fire because there may be a riot and innocent people get trampled to death. The Second Amendment is about the right to bear arms. And we certainly debate that a lot. Uh, does everybody get to have an arm, a weapon? Uh, should these be automatic weapons? Should you be able to have a rifle that will fire dozens of of shots in just a few seconds? Is that what one really needs to shoot a deer or to go hunting of some other kind? And so we talk about this right to bear arms. The fifth is also highly debated. It's talking about one's right before the law. Uh, what rights do we have before the law? And one part of it says that we cannot be forced to testify against ourselves, to incriminate ourselves. I remember a famous uh, attempted murder trial down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the person who was accused loved the media, and he had given a couple of television interviews until finally a friend of his hired one of the best-known criminal attorneys in all the state of Texas who said to this fellow, if you will not hang yourself, I'll see it to it that no one else does. And in fact, he was acquitted of a crime we all knew he in fact did. 
uh, he did not have to testify against himself. That's sort of what we have going on here in this encounter between Jesus and those who ran the temple in Jerusalem. The common people who heard Jesus had already decided that, in fact, he did have authority to teach, that he taught with great authority. He did have authority to preach. It came from God. He had authority to chase out demons, to heal people, to raise dead people to new life, even to forgive sins. But those who ran the temple didn't agree with that, of course. When they asked, uh, by what authority do you do these things? They meant not only teach and preach and heal, but turn over the tables of the money changers, which he had just done in this Gospel of Matthew. He decides, instead of answering, to ask them a question. "Eh, Let me ask you something. Uh, Was John's baptism from heaven, and that's Matthew's way of saying from God, uh, he's a good Jew who doesn't think one should say the name of God too much. You might rob it of its power. So Matthew doesn't talk about the kingdom of God. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. And here he doesn't talk about whether this baptism comes from God. He mentions from heaven, but he means God. Is, is this something God sent John to do, and he did it with God's authority? See, this is a very important question because Jesus had chosen himself to be baptized by John. And not only had he been baptized by John, but it was at that baptism that God spoke to him and said, You are my beloved son. I'm very pleased about what you've just done here. Well, they decided, gee, if we say John was from God, then he'll say, why didn't you do what John told you? And if we say he's not from God, then all the common people are going to be very upset because this John, who had been beheaded long before, now was a true prophet of God, the common people believe. So they said, we're not answering. We are not answering. We don't have to answer. Let's look at this text. Number one. I believe we do have to answer. I take an important part of my job to be pushing you to answer, to make a decision. Sometimes when I'm talking to one of you on the phone, Gail comes to the room where I'm calling, and she'll say to me later, you were pressing her pretty hard. You were pressing him pretty hard. And I say, yes, I was. I've discovered that this person was baptized 30 years ago and hasn't been a member of a church since. Somebody hasn't pressed her very hard. Somebody hasn't pressed him very hard. I think that's a part of my responsibility to help bring you to a moment of decision. Can't make you say yes. Can't do that. But I try to help you understand you've just made a decision. Did you read Garrison Keeler this week? He writes weekly in the Tulsa World. Garrison was bemoaning the fact that he just had his 65th birthday, like running into a brick wall, he said, but he's finally sort of come to peace with that. He was remembering when he used to go to school, when he was a little boy going to elementary school. He has a daughter now who's only nine. She's in fourth grade. And he laments the fact that he made some wrong decisions back there. A marriage failed and so on. Finally, his present marriage produced this little girl nine years ago whom he sees as the greatest thing he's ever done in his whole life. This little girl is his life at this point. And so he was remembering when he went to school in a small town in Minnesota, uh, the first cool mornings when he had a little box of pencils and he had his tablet and was walking to the nearby elementary school. And now this little nine-year-old daughter of his does the same and what that means to him. 
He was a nerd. He tells you that. He wore very thick glasses, didn't see very well, and he loved poetry more than football and majored in English in college. He read lots of poets, lots of philosophers, became a writer and radio performer in his own right. But in writing this week, he talked about what he's trying to impart to this nine-year-old daughter of his, how she should go cheerfully every day to school, and he says she does love it. She sort of mopes around on Saturdays and Sundays waiting for Monday to get there again so she can go back to school. He said when he was studying writers in America, it was popular to study Thoreau. Thoreau. This guy who camped out in a little shack on Walden Pond talks about how we lead lives of quiet desperation. Garrison Keillor said there was no reason for that. He's about the only one I know who is leading a life of quiet desperation. If he'd got out of that cabin, gone to see a few more people, maybe he wouldn't have been so silently desperate. And then he said the person we should have been reading was Ralph Waldo Emerson. That Emerson was the philosopher of making decisions. And when one makes good decisions, good things result. He quoted one little paragraph I want to share with you. This time, like all times, is a very good time if we but know what to do with it. Finish each day and be done with it. You've done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. Begin it well and serenely and with too high a spirit to be encumbered with your old nonsense. In other words, cheer up. Number two, Matthew is following Mark as he writes this story about what happened at the temple that last week of Jesus' life. When suddenly Matthew reaches into this quella, this other scroll he had before him, and says, hmm, I think that story fits right here. And where Mark didn't have that story, Matthew does. Luke doesn't have this story. John doesn't have this story. But Matthew decides this goes right here. Let's take a look. A man had two sons. He went to one and said to him, go work in the vineyard. Now remember all the baggage that the word vineyard carries for a Jew. Israel was the vineyard. One was to go work in this vineyard. This vineyard God had chosen. He sometimes pruned it, sometimes fertilized it, built a wall around it to protect it, sometimes let it be vulnerable to those who would come and harm the vineyard because those who worked in this vineyard had a very big job to do, try to convince the rest of the world there's only one true God, and this God has shown us how to be rightly related to him and how to be rightly related to each other. Go work in the vineyard. And the son said, I don't believe I want to. And then later, changed his mind and went to work. Know anybody like that? Who maybe said no at some point and then decided to say yes. Have you been following this big discussion about Mother Teresa that's come out recently? The fellow's written a book, and in this book he documents from Mother Teresa's own writings uh, some of the dark nights of her own soul. Uh, let me remind you a little bit about her. As a young nun, uh, she went with her order to Calcutta, India. She was sent there to teach children of privilege. 
she was to teach children of privilege, mostly British folk who lived in India who were big-time business people or diplomats. She was to teach their children. But after she taught their children, she would often wander down the streets of Calcutta, and she saw hunger. She saw sickness. She saw death in this hot, humid, sweltering place with millions of people. She saw so much hurt and pain. And so she asked her order if she might have permission to leave the school to spend her life in the streets of Calcutta. She's being considered for sainthood by the Roman Catholic Church. And now this fellow's written a book where he's telling things that come out of her journal. These are not new to people who knew Mother Teresa. They knew that she struggled with her faith in God, uh, begging God to be real, begging God to be visible, begging God to show him, her more clearly what she needed to be doing. And this fellow has no faith in God. And he's saying, see, even one of these you want to make a saint had no faith in God. And the reason is there is no God. That's his point. There was a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal this week that, that I thought got at it very carefully. He said, only one who worked with her every day could know why she thought what she thought, why she felt what she felt in the wee hours of the morning. If you worked among millions of sick and dying people, maybe you would ask for a clearer vision of God. If every day you knew there were more people than you could feed, more sick than you could tend, more dead than you could bury, more HIV-AIDS patients than you knew how to stop the spread of this horrible disease, what do you think you would have struggled with in the wee hours of the night? This frail little woman who weighed about 85 pounds, sleeping in this steamy, hot, muggy city. This writer said, the key is what happened every day when the sun rose. She got up and went to work. Every day she got up and went to work. And that is the key, he said. Anybody can say yes. Lots of people say no. But who do the will of their father? Number two, there was another son, Jesus said. And when the father said to him, I want you to go work in the vineyard today, he said, sure, dad, whatever you want. But he didn't go. Never went. Words were just words. They didn't really mean anything. Several years ago, I had the funeral for one of our older ladies here at the church. One of her sons had flown in from Southern California uh, when he walked into the parlor that morning before the service. First thing I saw was his necktie. It was beautiful, vivid colors, very bright for one's mother's funeral, I thought. And it was one of those things where you're aware that somebody has a wart on their nose and you're determined not to say anything about the wart on the nose and the first thing you say, you know, well, I said, what a beautiful tie. And two weeks later, it came to me in the mail. And when I received it and was looking at it more carefully, I saw that it was a Gianni Versace tie. It's 
probably the most expensive tie I have in my wardrobe. I do wear it occasionally, though I'm a little strained to find occasions where it seems to be the proper colors, but I do wear it from time to time. And since that time, I've paid a little more attention to the name Versace. You know that Gianni was murdered 10 years ago now, 1997. A man on a spree of killing across the country ended up in Florida and killed Gianni Versace uh, before the authorities could catch him. Uh, Gianni left his vast fashion empire to his older brother, left him 30%, to his sister Donatella, 20%, and left 50% to an 11-year-old niece, Donatella's daughter. Guess what? That niece just turned 21. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens now. Uncle has 30%, Donatella has 20 but niece has 50 What happens now? In an article in the New Yorker magazine recently, was talking about Donatella and how she lives her life and how she's trying to run this vast empire the last 10 years. And then it talked about her being in one of her big shows, one of the big fashion shows, and then going out onto the veranda to smoke. And it said she loves Marlboros. But she does not want to be reminded that these cigarettes are probably going to kill her. So she requires that those who work for her go buy her cartons of Marlboros at a time and very carefully paste over the Surgeon General's warning her logo, her monogram over the warning, and she smokes right away. Now, as I read that, I thought, what games we play with words if we paste over and pretend they aren't there, then they aren't true? Or we can say anything and do something quite different from what we say? Number four. Which do you think did the will of his father? And the listener said, the first. The one who said no, but later went. Now, Dr. Brendan Scott says you have to be very careful here. You have to think about the situation into which Jesus was speaking. Jesus talked about things he knew. But good writers write about things they know. Good Storytellers tell stories about things they know. And Jesus' experience was growing up in a little village up in Galilee. Nazareth was so small and so unimportant that it is never mentioned a single time in the 39 books of the Hebrew Scriptures. It was a nowhere sort of place. Now, Dr. Scott says, in such a small village... All life centered in the family. And that almost every family was living on subsistent wages, looking for that one denarius a day that would feed the family one more day. And so it was so important that sons grow up and be responsible. Because in that day, in that time and place, a woman was in great trouble if she had no man to look after her. 
a woman alone was so vulnerable to anything and everything in the society. Sons needed to grow up and be responsible. This was a shame and honor society, he said. You need to keep remembering that Israel today, as Israel long ago, is not a part of Europe. It's a part of Asia. Asia. It was about shame and honor. We shame each other or we honor each other by the way we behave. And so Dr. Scott says, you see, the first son dishonored his father, shamed him in public, saying, no, I'm not going. But honored him in private by going. The second son honored him in public by saying, sure, Dad, whatever you want. And shamed him in private when he never went. So both sons have shamed and honored their father. And now we're supposed to choose which is the better. Friday night, Gail and I went to see Theodore Tulsa's latest uh, presentation, The Lion in Winter. You remember when Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole made the movie on this play? It's a story of 1183, long, long time ago, when Henry II was king of England and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine had been put in prison by Henry for ten years. She had borne him four sons. The oldest has died. Three remain. The oldest of those remaining are Richard, middle Geoffrey, youngest John. And it's a play about which parent wants which son to succeed to the throne. The mother, Eleanor, wants the oldest son who remains, Richard. You remember your history. She won. The play doesn't tell you she won, but Richard became Richard the Lionhearted. The father prefers John. He's a teenager. He has acne in the play. He's, he's silly. He doesn't get it. All of these storytelling back and forth and people lying and sometimes telling the truth and then lying again. He, John is not in it. Jeffrey is a really smart one, but nobody chooses Jeffrey. It's a story about which son do you choose. And the family is in utter chaos. You see, King Lear is about a similar kind of decision. Daughters this time, but same kind of struggle. Which daughter really loves me? Which daughter can I trust? Which daughter do I allow to succeed me? And Lear makes a mess of the whole thing. Dr. Scott says you need to remember there's another story Jesus told about a man who had two sons. This one is told only in Matthew. The second one is told only in Luke. Once upon a time, a man had two sons. The younger one came to him and said, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you die. And the father put the whole family in jeopardy by giving a third. Older son gets two-thirds. Younger son took his third and went away. Lived among Gentiles. Ended up in a pog's pen. Finally came home. The father saw him, ran down the road to meet him, threw his arms around him, kissed him on the neck, took his gold ring off his finger, put it on the son, took his shoes, gave it to the boy, put a robe around his shoulders and said, kill the fattest, best calf we've got. We've got to have a party. The father had two sons. One son had never left, had always been faithful, had worked every day in the vineyard. 
he didn't like the fact that the young son was getting so much. I've been here all these years. You never killed a calf for me. I've been here all these years. Didn't bring out new shoes and gold ring, cloak around my shoulders. Most people identify with the prodigal. I've always identified with the older son. Never saw myself in that prodigal role. I was the one who stayed at home, who did the right things, who tried really hard to please a mother and a father. Choose, Brendan Scott says. Choose. And then he says, note very carefully here, that Matthew does choose. He said, those who say no and later go into the vineyard are tax collectors and prostitutes. They said no to Torah. Tax collectors have cheated their own people to send tax money to Rome. Prostitutes are mostly selling themselves to Roman soldiers. They're the ones with the money. He sees those who run the temple as being those who say, Sure, Father, I will do Torah, and then do not do Torah. Brendan Scott said, You need to remember that there were lots of good priests who both said yes to Torah and did Torah. And even when John had preached and been beheaded, and Jesus had preached and been crucified, there were still enough tax collectors to collect all the taxes there were plenty of prostitutes for all the Roman soldiers who had money. It's too simple, he says. Matthew's interpretation, a little too simple. We always want to choose which son. Dr. Brandon Scott says, listen carefully to Jesus. Is he not saying, my father's kingdom is nothing like this empire in which you live. It's more like a family, dysfunctional as it may be. It's more like a family. And the Father is God. And this Father will not choose. He loves both of them too much to do that.